Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Speaking of the Arts. We're here live in Kansas City at the Arts Midwest Conference. Uh, it's pretty hot today, but I think the weather's supposed to get a little bit cooler. And this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, again, we're here at the conference, and I just so happen to have one John Posis, Executive Director of the We Always Swing Jazz Series in Columbia, Missouri. Um, John is going to talk to us about how his series has thrived for over 20 years now in Columbia, and I'm very excited to have him talk about this. I think that a lot of presenters listening are going to get a lot of value out of it because one of the common challenges that I run into, primarily booking jazz artists, is how to book jazz artists. And if John can do it in Columbia, Missouri for over 20 years, I think uh, there's a lot to be said about that. So... John, without further ado, thank you for taking the time to do this. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. It's nice to run run into you across paths here here at the conference. Uh, it was close enough to Columbia, two hours away by car, 120 miles down Interstate 70, as we like to call it, I-70, and uh, so easy enough for me to get here for this uh, particular conference. Yeah, a little bit closer than Boston, I would think. A little bit closer <laughs> than Boston. I usually make the annual conferences course in New York, uh, being a native New Yorker for one, and, and secondly because just the national scope of it is, is appealing to me. Great. Well, John, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How did We Always Swing start? And let's, let's start with that point. So take us back over 20 years now. Well, uh, my first foray in, into jazz actually is through the journalistic route I uh, came out to Columbia to attend the University of Missouri in uh, 1978 uh, to go after a uh, grad degree, a master's degree in journalism, which I managed to secure by 1980. And not knowing exactly what I wanted to do journalistically, uh, I got into the print business and specifically into the freelance writing, uh, trying to contribute articles to uh, well-known publications and actually trying to earn a living from that, which uh, I would say I did borderline freelance writing being not that dissimilar in trying to present or book jazz. And uh, one of the things I wrote about was uh, was music, certainly, and, and jazz specifically. And in 1985, uh, I was teaching journalism and also working at a record store which is a foreign concept these days, as we were discussing earlier, um, and working at a, a bar that had live music. And two of my close friends opened up uh, what was a country and western bar known as Andy's Corner in Columbia, Missouri, and they wanted to make it a jazz motif and uh, have it be a restaurant and... Uh, initially just recorded jazz on CD players back then and not satellite and they asked me early on if any of the artists I was interviewing for articles uh, would be interested in performing live and this is they opened in July of 85 and I happened to be working on a profile of the late James Williams who would later become client, a friend, and much more, and uh, I asked James in the middle of our interview if he would be interested in performing 
at this, what was then a 100-seat newly opened restaurant. And James, if he ever got to the Midwest, then James said yes, he'd be interested. And so in September of 1985, I presented James Williams at Murray's, which is the name of this restaurant, still open, still owned by the same two people, my good friends Gary Moore and Bill Shields. And at that time, Murray's had an upright piano, as I like to call it, an Acme upright. I don't know, no-name piano with no sound system, and all we did was bring in a couple of speakers, and we put microphones on the back of the piano, and James played uh, with a, actually with a local bass, bassist and drummer, and that was the first live event. Following that, within, I would say, days... James, of course, went back to New York where he was based, and uh, James was at the epicenter of the jazz world in New York, and lo and behold, before you could say boo, my phone started ringing and people came on, people, well-known artists, artists I admired and had been listening to for the last 10 or 12 years, saying that James Williams said, you own this club and have a great venue out there, and you book jazz. I kid you not. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to remember who exactly, but all nationally known artists, you know. And, of course, I was rather taken aback. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I found myself, without hanging out a shingle or announcing I was an agent or whatever, I started booking jazz. And the way I did it back then, because we're pre-cell phones, pre fax machines, although I think fax machines were just coming on, um, but certainly pre a lot of things, uh, internet, etc. So uh, I began booking tours with artists, including Columbia, in a tour, and the way I initially set up tours was to call NPR stations in every city and create a database, because back then... NPR, not only a lot of the stations had jazz programming, they actually had music directors, and what's more, a number of them actually had jazz directors, wow. as, as far in a concept as that seems today. And I would simply get on the phone and say, do you have a venue in your town or your city that presents live jazz featuring nationally known artists, touring artists? And I created a database initially in the Midwest, and it gradually expanded, and at first I was doing a weekend, and then it became a week, and then it became 10 days, and two weeks, three weeks, and there were a number of artists I actually toured, went on the road with domestically for uh, a month, or very close to it, and had bookings. I can remember, for instance, a Joanne Bracken Quartet tour I did that was something like 28 days, like 25 gigs in 28 days. I took the either orchestra on the road uh, through the Midwest, a 10-piece band out of Boston led by Russ Gershon, which at that time had John Medeski in it and Matt Wilson in it. And we did about 30 days on the road. Um, I ended up, I was doing a lot of writing still in minor note writing, and I ended up taking a group with the guitarist Peter Leach that included James and Bobby Watson and Ray Drummond and Marvin Smitty Smith. I took them on the road, and ultimately I represented Bobby Watson and Horizon to a certain extent, and it just got broader and broader to where 
Um, there were more artists interested. As you know, Mike, there are more artists looking for management and, and artist representation than there are people to do the booking. Uh, and so it's, it's a buyer's market, if you will. And, and one thing led to the next. The next thing I knew, I was doing cross-country tours and the Canada festivals in Europe, etc. All the while, I would drop them into Colombia as part of a tour. And uh, some of the tours that I'm most proud of, uh, I took the leaders with Lester Bowie and uh, Cecil McBee and uh, um, Chico Freeman, Kirk Lightsey, uh, Don Moyer, and Arthur Blythe. I took them on the road, and Lester told me it was the, the only long American tour he ever did, which, you know, says something, you know. Uh, James and I concocted what we called the Four Piano Tour, where Yamaha gave me four matching grands, and we took them to 23, 19 cities in 23 days, same pianos on the road, de delivering them to presenters over wow. overnight, yeah. and, and then having them climatize and technician tune them, and then did the concert, and then did the same thing the next night. So I felt really proud that I worked very closely with Von Freeman and talked him to coming out of Chicago and booked him and got him, you know, several gigs, which, you know, very special person. Uh, and, and a number of these uh, kinds of tours that were special projects in a lot of ways. I uh, didn't really represent anybody exclusively. It was, I just came up with ideas, approached players, or their managers, uh, and one thing led to the next. Meanwhile, fast forward, uh, in 1994, Murray's, this little restaurant, which had opened very humbly, became Columbia's most popular local restaurant, in part due to uh, the ownership being consistent, the food being consistent, uh, the fact that they uh, delivered, you know, they were just wonderful, and they still are to this day. So the restaurant began to really, really thrive. And we were doing shows every Saturday night with national acts being about once a month, regional acts from St. Louis and Kansas City being about once a month, and a local band once a month. Something akin to that formula, as I remember. And then what happened was Murray's became very, very popular. And, of course, Saturday night for restaurants is their make-or-break night. And we had built up a mailing list. And, again, we're, we're not dealing with email lists and listserv. We're dealing with hard addresses, uh, and we're mailing out calendars, cutting and pasting my favorite whiteout. You know, when you make a mistake and you get pounds of whiteout on it, thing and then you run it through a copy machine to hope there aren't too many lines on it um, and what happened was the clientele the j hardcore jazz audience of which maybe there were a hundred would come out each Saturday night that we had the national artists and they'd claim the table at about seven and we wouldn't start the music until like nine and we kept pushing the music back so the dinner crowd would clear out and just and we kept pushing it back. If you can believe it, there was a time when we were starting music at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night at Murray's wow. and having 100 people show up. I don't believe we could do that again at this, at this point. At any rate, so rather than 
So what was happening was the waitresses weren't happy. There was no turnover of the tables. There was no food turnover. There was no beverage turnover. Not real good for restaurant economy. Right. And these are two of my closest friends. So we had a big powwow in late 94, I believe. And uh, we decided to disband the formula because it was hurting the restaurant too much. And the irony is, uh, the irony was I didn't want jazz to be the downfall of two of my best friends' business. So that was the impetus to get myself off the road and ask people unofficially, um, impromptu, would you subscribe to a subscription series? If it was at different venues around Columbia and the so-called hardcore audience, which, you know, again, 100, 150, 200 maybe, everybody said, yeah, what a great idea, what a great idea. So lo and behold, the f it took me a year to put the jazz series together. Uh, and Columbia is a university town, so you, your, your clock, if you will, your schedule is pretty much fall to spring, kind of, and it empties out in the summer. And uh, I created a six-concert subscription series. Uh, some of the artists I was still touring, including the first, very first jazz series concert, I called it the We Always Swing Jazz Series. Presented by, which was my company, National Past Times Productions. I'll explain that in a second. And um, uh, we, I was booking as part of a tour uh, a project that Slide Hampton was leading called Big Band Bird. It was the 75th, would have been the 75th birthday of Charlie Parker. It was a 13 piece band with. Danilo Perez and David Sanchez and Jerome Richardson. I mean, this band was freaking loaded, as they say. It was top to bottom. It was a great band. And, of course, Slide Hampton being, you know, not just a great trombonist, but one of the great arrangers. And so Slide rearranged, reimagined whatever um, Charlie Parker's work for 13 pieces. And the first concert was... In here I am in Missouri, in Charlie Parker's home state, and being the optimist I was, I, I scheduled it for a 1,700-seat auditorium, and we put we put tickets on sale. The season tickets, we got 13 season ticket holders. Was the first year. Wow. All of 78 tickets, 13 times six. Wow. I still remember that number. And for Big Band Bird, which is what the project was called. Uh, in this 1,700-seater, I believe we sold, at the number that sticks in my head, 242 tickets. Wow. <laughs> the Jazz Series was almost born and died on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, let, me, let me just interject. So, yeah. you, so when you guys decided at Murray's to go from Saturday nights to then the six concert series, subscription series, you transitioned to Sundays? No, no. Or that hadn't happened no, yet? No, that hadn't happened yet. Okay. And, and the reason that hadn't happened, um, and we were sort of leaving people, leaving, uh, Missouri used to have what's called blue laws. And for restaurants, that meant you had to do 51% of your business had to be food. You could not do more, which is why all the bars were closed on Sunday that didn't serve food. Murray's itself was closed on Sundays, even though it did a lot of food. It did not do 51%, nor did my friends want to have a restaurant open seven days a week. They were not interested. 
And if you wanted to do something on a Sunday, you had to get a special license, which was ex at that time exorbitant. The the laws have a, now, if not evaporated, they're they're quite a lot, you know, looser than they, than ever. You know, I don't even know what exists anymore in the books. But I took the Jazz Series out of Murray's totally for the first uh, three years, and it was sort of have venue, we'll travel, and we did we did performances. Uh, in fine arts recital halls, we did performances in theaters, we did performances in whatever venue that I felt suited the jazz series. And it was really, it was essentially my, um, my property, if you will, the jazz series. I mean, it was my enterprise, totally. Murray's was merely in it as a venue. They ran a restaurant, they were, and provided a space, but they were not part of the the jazz series. <laughs> so the jazz series started the fall of '95, and uh, I ran it conceptually as a nonprofit, which is to say, I set it up its own federal ID account. I set up its own bank account. Uh, any anybody who gave donated money, businesses who took out advertising in programs or whatever, could use it as a tax write-off. But individuals who made donations, of which there weren't very many at that time. Uh, could not take a tax deduction because I wasn't a 501c3. But conceptually, that's how the organization or the entity was run. Um, and I did. I knew ultimately I would apply and make it a 501c3. It was the only way to survive grants, etc. So in March of '99, in in the middle of the fourth season, I guess. Yeah, fourth season. It became a. We were granted a 501c3. We had a board of directors, which is in place today. So the structure of the Jazz Series. Initially, it was my own company, National Pastimes Productions, presenting the We Always Swing Jazz Series. I see. Ultimately, the company became We Always Swing, Inc. And I separated my personal bookings and artist representation with, from, I should say, from the Jazz Series. And that is separate to this day. Um, I still work with certain players. Bobby Watson is a very dear friend and, and a colleague, as is the wonderful trombonist Conrad Herwig, who I represent his, his and manage him and his Latin side projects and his other projects. Um, but mostly my time is taking the Jazz Series. So the Jazz Series became my main focus, not the touring per se and the booking. Um, about three years, four years into the Jazz Series, the, the Sunday laws changed in Missouri that made it possible for bars and restaurants to do stuff on Sundays. I then went back to my friends and said, at Murray's and said, would you be interested in having some, not every Sunday, some Sundays at Murray's? And they were. And initially, we scheduled, we kept the basically the six concerts out of Murray's and called it Jazz Around Town as a subtitle. And then the other section became Sundays at Murray's. And together, they became the Jazz Series. So the, the, the project almost doubled overnight. It went from, I think, the first year we had four shows at Murray's. And initially, it was just going to be a Sunday matinee, and at that point, Murray's was 100 seats. It's now expanded to be 125 seats. So initially, it was just going to be one show, and it was so popular 
the idea of people coming, eating great food, and hearing great jazz in a living room, that in the middle of negotiations of the first four artists, and I remember it was Danilo Perez and Nina Freelon, Benny Green, and Brad Meldow. Um, and I negotiated, would you be willing to do a second seating on the same day? So, so the Murray shows immediately went from 100 to 200 seats, okay. which made it a little more economically viable for everybody. And then Murray's has since expanded a little bit, I think back in 2001 or two, and so it became 125 and 125, and that's where it is now. Meanwhile, we kept uh, the other shows going, which allowed us the flexibility to book larger acts, if you will, or acts that could hopefully draw more than 125 or 250 people. Uh, we're we're community-based. We're independent. We're not attached to a university or a municipality. So we're, we raise our own money. We uh, are, are freestanding, if you will. If I can just back up the reason uh, I named my original company National Pastimes Productions was due to the fact of my love of, of baseball, and I felt jazz as well as baseball is a national pastime, and therefore America has two national pastimes productions. And of course, we're having we're doing this podcast on the opening day of NFL football, which personally <laughs> I could care less about. It's as I like to tell all my friends who think football was the most popular sport. It's really just filler in between baseball. That's all. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, that's considering a, the Patriots are playing the Steelers tonight, you're talking to the wrong guy. That's right. Because you know who I'll be rooting for. <laughs> right. So, uh, at any rate, so uh, that's how the name of the company and a friend of mine. Speaking of the early days of graphic arts and technology, when I set up National Pastimes Productions in 1986, I wanted, I don't know if you remember, Mike, because you're a little younger than I am, but you used to be able to get like uh, custom-made logos or uh, icons on, on a check that, you know, aside from just putting your name and address. So I went into the bank when I set up National Pastimes Productions as, as its own entity, and I said, uh, they showed me the book, and they had a piano, which I, that was cool, and they had a baseball player with an umpire and a catcher behind it, and I said, can I have both of those? And they said, no, you can only have one. So I chose the baseball player, and that became the, the initial logo for National Pastimes Productions. But, lo and behold, a friend of mine who was doing my very first brochure... Um, in quotes, that's in quotes for those of you listening, um, which, you know, artist roster and that kind of thing. She said, you know, I have this program called Photoshop that just came out, <laughs> and I can change, I can put an instrument in, in instead of a bat in the guy's hands, and I can take the number off the back of his uniform and put a note. And I said, really? And so initially she had a trumpet and a note on the, and it, I didn't quite like the... I asked her about a trumpet first because there's a wonderful cover of an LP called the uh, Pittsburgh Pirate Meets the Mexican Bandit, which is a Roy Eldridge, Paul Gonzalez re uh, recording, and, and, uh, and Eldridge is, is, is sort of used, using his trumpet as a bat 
and so that's what made me think of it. So, uh, but I didn't like the angle of the trumpet, et cetera, and she said, how about a saxophone? I said, yeah, I like it because it's got the bell curve, like a J or whatever. And so the logo became the, what we call now the swinging saxophonist, which is now a registered trademark, I'm proud to say. So don't be stealing that. Anyway, <laughs> so that logo, um, I retain ownership of it, but it is the logo used for both National Pastimes Productions and for the We Always Swing Jazz jazz series. And so there are two entities. Um, the jazz series itself has gradually grown. It is still a real challenge. Columbia, when I moved to Columbia, it was about 40,000 people and plus about 20,000 students, big university town. It's now about 120,000 people and 35,000 university students three colleges, but the main one is the University of Missouri. So the community has grown, and by default, there's more people moving in who like jazz, but it is still a remarkably difficult sell. I do, mean, do you I, have some of the same people subscribing that you did 20 years ago? This is sort of, this is sort of interesting, because I know a lot of other presenters um, have gone away from subscriptions, because people's lifestyles have changed and people don't like to commit 10 months out or 11 months out to a date. Um, we have decided to really push subscriptions. And also, ironically, it's not that subscriptions are less expensive. There, there is a sense of if you buy now and buy the whole shebang, you, you can save some money. And you do, but you don't save a lot. What you do get by being a season subscriber is the best seats that we have in small, intimate venues. I mean, we have people walking in, you know, uh, you know, a month after our season tickets go on sale, and they can't believe that they can't get any good seats to Band X or Person X. And that's because we've, we've built up our subscription base, and now we're talking the 2015-16 season is 12 concerts. Um, seven of those are at Murray's, five are at different venues around town. A church, a fine arts recital hall, a ballroom, uh, a th and two at a, at a thousand seat theater um, are the non-Murray's seats. And uh, I believe when I left Columbia yesterday, or today actually, uh, we had sold so far about 125 subscribers. On top of that, we created a mid-tier where you could buy multi-concert packages, which were all the Murray shows, all the non-Murray shows, or we created a quote-unquote sampler. And when you mix that in with the season ticket holders, Murray's is close to selling 200 of the 250 tickets. And that means the shows next April have 50 single tickets left for both combined for both seatings and the evening's more popular for all I know there's like 15 seats left for the evening so we've come it's you know it's it's tempting to make it pick your own eight top to bottom because that's how people's lives are these days but we seem to have a loyal base and yes we have had subscribers it'd be interesting obviously uh, sad as it is to say some of our subscribers have died right um, in twenty in the last twenty years, um, but 
I would say we probably, out of say 120 something subscribers, my guess is 40 to 50 of them have been subscribers for 20 years. Lifetime members. Lifetime members and contributors. I mean, we're talking about people that really love this music and are willing not just to buy the tickets, but, you know, to contribute, some of them quite generously. So That's great. But, you know, my goal has always been to, my ultimate goal is to have 250 subscribers and have Murray sold out before we... Sell out the whole subscription. Sell out the, sell out the, so that, that piece of it. And, and in essence, force people, if you want to go see jazz series, you got to go to these larger venues. Right. You know, so it's about creating demand, marketing it, um, keeping, you know, we've been, you know, I, I, don't, I don't consider myself a purist. Um, we have a certain formula. It's, an, it's decidedly an arts-driven project. Uh, I, as in my tenure as executive director, I really won't dumb down the, the series or, or overly commercialize it. Uh, on the other hand, you have to balance art and commerce, and you can't just, it's not about just booking what John Poses likes. It's, it's about booking. We don't have a programming committee. I have sole discretion over the booking. Uh, at, at some point, maybe that will change, uh, and that may be a healthy thing. And um, once I ride off into the Jazz Series sunset, the next person comes along. I mean, my personal goal is to make sure the Jazz Series does not die with me. Um, because that would be a shame. I mean, as you say, we're, this is our 21st season. So, um, but, you know, um, it's, our 20th anniversary was remarkable. And I think we have a fantastic 21st season as well. I'm sorry we don't have any Mike Epstein artists on it. <laughs> <laughs> we did last year. We did last year. Yeah. We did, and, our, and our formula for, for, if you want to call it that, our pattern, I guess you could say, uh, I, as I explained to you, we like to bring, there's five, five pieces to this booking is from what I, in my mind. One, and, and no particular order of importance. One is we like varied age. I'm very pleased with the fact that we've had uh, um, artists who are barely 20 when they started out, and we presented them, and we presented, I think the oldest artist we presented was Candido, who was 91 at the time. So I like the range of generations. Obviously, both men and women. Obviously, diverse backgrounds is part of it. Then there comes of bringing people back periodically, but doing so in different contexts. So you're not just bringing somebody back the same, same, same. Now, there's some of that inevitably. But even if an artist comes back as a leader, again, he or she or they have a different project going. So it's not just the same old, same old. And then the idea of bringing in different size instrumental and vocal, but different sized ensembles so that people get a flavor of uh, everything from a solo piano or a duo recital to a large ensemble, 15, 16 pieces, whatever. Now, we don't do that every season. It doesn't always work out. One, we don't have our own venue, so we're subject to that. Two, Murray's is only available to us on Sundays. So, And we do a matinee, which means players have to be in proximity to get there in time for like a noon sound check. So that puts a little clunker on it. And then 
while we don't have to present always on weekends, etc., you know, we are dealing with a smaller population base. So trying to do something on a Monday or a Tuesday is you're, you're potentially asking for trouble. Right. That's all I can say. So it's, it's a geographic mosaic. It's a, you know, uh, it's, a, it's just a, a whole kind of, you know, can we get venues, et cetera. And, but then the most important thing is the, is the musicians, of course, and the, the music they're making. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up this season? Okay, this season, which is our 21st, and uh, our, our fund, we always try to have a little bit of fun with raising money. We do, the, the Jazz Series budget these days is about 305 to 310, 15,000, which depends on ticket sales, really, and how much money we can raise. We usually do about 100,000 or so, give or take, in ticket sales, so we need to raise $200,000 in any which way we can. Um, and part of that, a big chunk of that is, or um, an increased uh, chunk of that is from individual donors, and we try to we try to have fun with it. Last year was the 20th anniversary, of course, so um, we we could we we created a uh, artificial clock with 20 ticks in it, and every time we raised five thousand dollars, we 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 ticked off we ticked off five thousand dollars. So, uh, and we didn't quite make that goal. This year, the campaign is called Top It Off, and we have a giant beer glass, a Pilsner beer glass, because we're 21. Mm -hmm. So we're legal, see? <laughs> we're here to stay. So as people contribute, it's called the Top It Off campaign. So we were asking people to top it off. So we, as the season comes on, people contribute, make tax-deductible contributions, to, the beer is going to, and the ultimate is to get to the top of the glass, it's 32 ounces, $2,500 an ounce. So we get, we're trying to raise 80000 and then create a TV beer. As far as the music that we're doing, it's a range this year. It's very interesting, I think. Uh, and now, of course, I'm probably going to forget who we have. But uh, among the artists that we have, we are, for instance, getting back to the so-called pattern, we're bringing Chucho Valdez back. And he was there last year as a solo piano artist. This year he's on tour with Eric Carey, and I felt that's an important piece for us. We always do a Cuban-related concert. We've had uh, Orquesta Aragon, we've had Tiempo Libre, we've had Gonzalo Rubalcaba, we've had Chucho Valdez, we've had uh, um, Orquesta Aragon, we've had... Um, uh, anyway, each year we do uh, a Cuban artist. So. We're bringing Chucho back this time with Eric Carey based on the 40, their 40th anniversary tour. We're, that's one of the cornerstones, if you will, of our series. The other important piece that we're doing, not that they're all important, but another interesting piece, we came across uh, a commission that the Metropolitan Museum of Art did that featured Orrin Evans, the pianist, and his Captain Black Big Band, and they were commissioned to write a piece called A Musical Tribute to Thomas Hart Benton, who is sort of a regional, well-known artist, uh, but really national and very hot right now, as they say in the industry. And for instance, one of his main students was Jackson Pollock. Andy Warhol was one of his students. And um, he has a very distinct 
uh, Americana kind of exaggerated, um, colorful, uh, does large murals. But he was born in Neosho, Missouri, which is near the Arkansas border. Spent a lot of time in Kansas City, but the largest collection of, of Benton work is in Columbia, Missouri. And we got this idea, well, if the New York Met is doing this and having a ten, Orrin Evans in a 10-piece band, we should present this in Missouri. And this is the kind of special project that we love. And so we worked out a licensing deal with the Met to use what they created, which is digital backdrops of these oversized Benton murals behind the stage. And we're bringing out Orrin Evans and the Captain Black Big Band, which is pared down. It was 10 pieces for the museum in New York. It's, it's going to be 10 pieces. And we're doing like a three-day thing where we're bringing in Thomas Hart Benton experts to talk about his painting. We're going to show some documentaries on Thomas Hart Benton. One was done by Ken Burns. Another was done by the University of Missouri. We're going to have an exhibit of Thomas Hart Benton uh, artwork, which is easy because it's all there in Columbia. And then it'll be capped off by Orrin Evans and the group playing a performance um, in part, a full concert, but part of the performance will be uh, this five-part suite that they wrote, which was performed in New York last February. So we will be the second ones in the country to do this. And this is the kind of project or event that I live for that my board screams about. But <laughs> but this is what this is what I feel we this is what you know we're curators in a lot of ways. So that's a that's a very important piece. We're bringing Danilo Perez, who hasn't been there in about five years. He's going to perform. Um, let's see who else we're doing young Christian Scott who is a rising trumpeter as you know and uh, brings something to the table and uh, exposing people to that um, we're, we've, uh, uh, we've never had um, uh, Diane Shure I don't know why but we've never booked her she's not um, you know uh, she's not the prototypical great jazz singer I mean she, she crosses over, but I was very interested in the fact that she was doing this program called uh, Sinatra and Getz, and that kind of interested me. So she's, she's part of the series. Um, uh, let me see, who else are we bringing? Re Josh Redman and the Bad Oh, Plus. yeah, that's right. We, we have brought the Bad, we have had, Joshua Redman was there with his Elastic Band, was the last time he was there, which I looked up was 2002. He has not been a Colombian 14 years or something. Anyway, so that was intriguing. And the Bad Plus we've had, I think this will be their third visit. Um, but I, again, the idea of bringing people in different contexts. So um, we're, you know, having Bad, as they're calling themselves, Bad Plus Joshua Redmond. Uh, a little kitschy for me, but, you know, each to their own. Uh, who am I to, you know, step on anybody's toes? So we're bringing them, and we're actually putting them in Murray's, which, you know, again, you're dealing with 250 seats. So, um, and that's one of the ones that, you know, it's not till next April, but it'll be sell out way in advance, yeah. we hope. Uh, and then um, let's see, who else are we bringing in? I'm trying to think um, uh, who, oh, we're bringing in Amina Figueroa who, and her sextet. Uh, I've been wanting. I, I really enjoy her music, and I saw her about two or three times in New York, and 
she was on the short list and she's never been to Colombia. And I guarantee you, you and I are the only people who know who she is in Colombia. So, and I don't live in Colombia. And you don't live in Colombia. So, <laughs> so again, we try to push the envelope a little bit and not so much, somewhat musically, but in terms of name recognition, it's always, it's, it's a, uh, um, it's, we try to challenge our audiences. You know, and and I think ultimately they appreciate it. We have any number of people who have said over the years, I don't know who, I never knew who these people were until I saw them in Colombia. Then I see them, they're all over the world. I was in Sweden and they were, so-and-so was playing. I was in New York, so-and-so was playing, which is a little more obvious. I was in so-and-so, you know, now I see all these names and they I t know who they are. So I feel like, you know, over 20 years, we're talking... 240 concerts maybe something like that um, you know we, we're a small market we can't present I mean the thing that concerns me as a presenter and as somebody who represents jazz artists is the decreasing number of venues um, and let me rephrase that it's not the venues that are decreasing it is the presenters it is the people who are presenting jazz that I think are because of economics, because it is a big challenge to, to sell this music to its own country. It always has been, it always will be, but particularly now I think it's, it's a very tricky time. And so I think if you look around the country, um, and I don't mean any disrespect to any of these venues, but if you look at a stalwart venue such as my friend Lowell Pickett, up at the Dakota, which was really one of the great, great jazz venues and still offers jazz programming, but he's been forced to stay in business. He's been forced to become eclectic. If you look at Yoshi's in San Francisco and Oakland, not only have they changed ownerships and who knows what internally. But San but, Francisco but, venue is no longer there. Right, but, but, but you, look at, you look at the calendar and you barely recognize it as a jazz venue. If you look at um, the places around the country, the, to my knowledge, the only week-long engagement anymore in America, and I may be wrong about this, but as far as I can tell, the Village Vanguard is the only place that books Tuesday through Sunday. Now, there may be a couple other clubs in New York that do it on occasion. The Blue Note maybe does it, uh, you know, but more, I mean, there are not... I mean, the Jazz Showcase in Chicago, God bless Joe Siegel, is Thursday to Sunday, if, if that. Um, you know, the, the, the venue in St. Louis, Jazz St. Louis, Jazz the Bistro, are doing a very good job, but, you know, and, and, and they just expanded, and they're Thursday to Sunday for a chunk of their programming, um, and it's going to be interesting to see if they can fill that and continue to fill that. With, you know, it's 200 seats now. So that's a measurable, a measurable size club for a certain, you know, size city. But you, you might know this, Mike, as somebody who's, you know, spends his time booking jazz, jazz and other artists. I mean, I truly do not know, other than the vanguard, of a week-long engagement. There's, there's no week-long engagement in Boston. Yeah, the, the Vanguard is, the mo you know, that's always what they've done. They're the only ones doing it. Right. And those other clubs you mentioned might do it occasionally, but right. the Vanguard's, that's definitely it. Yeah, which is a, is a radical change from when I started 
getting involved. I mean, there were a lot of clubs that booked six days. Weren't there clubs that would do month-long residencies with uh, I don't know artists? about... Like, a lot, a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, maybe. And I still think, I think, some, you know, clubs, everybody tries different things at different points. There are people that might be a residence of, of a given artist or whatever, and that artist might bring in different bands in different contexts. You know, use, you know, you take somebody like Bill Frizzell, who's got nine projects going or whatever, and maybe he could do a month and he would have different projects. But I, I think, you know, you know, so on the, on the other hand, when people say jazz is dying, I don't believe it. I, I, I mean, I just, I don't believe it. But I, I am concerned about, you know, uh, um, the lack of venues. I mean, the lack of presenters of jazz. The lack of opportunities for jazz artists. And I mean major jazz artists. Never mind all these students coming out of jazz programs. I mean, the jazz programs in, on the campuses are exploding. I want to know where all these, you know, it's like, Columbia housing is exploding. Do they really expect every apartment to be filled? I, I don't know. I don't see it happening. And I mean, how are all these students coming out? Some of them, many of them, very good players at a young age. But, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure how they're going to fill venues. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how they're going to find venues to fill and then fill them. So uh, it's. I think it's an interesting period, that's for sure. Uh, as far as the jazz series is concerned, I mean, we have um, we have maxed out, in my opinion, what we can do for our community in terms of numbers of events, because aside from the concerts, we're doing, you know, a slew of activities from children's concerts and master classes, showing film documentaries. I mean, anybody who loves jazz in Columbia, Missouri, aside from being a season ticket holder and going to 12 concerts, they can, they'll have an opportunity to do 15 other jazz series-related events. I mean, we're, we're pushing 25 to 30 events in a year. And um, as a presenter of jazz, the jazz series, we receive, uh, we probably could have presented 40 to 50 deserving artists, many who have been to the jazz series previously. At some point, I mean, this, this season booking, when I was booking for 15, 16, was the first time I can remember that three, what I would consider A-shelf artists, all wanted to come to Columbia on the same day. That was the first. Wow. That was the first. And I said, oh man, this is out of control. I mean, we can't, you know, we just can't book 50 concerts in Columbia, Missouri. Right. I would love it, but... Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we, a dozen is about our our max, you right. know, and maybe an occasional special event on top of that. Sure. Performance-wise. Yeah. So, anyway. So, it's a challenge, you know, but it's it's, it's rewarding, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, 20 years going on 21, and... 25 the 25th anniversary isn't that far away hey hey so i have no doubt just, you're gonna keep doing this well as i tell my friends you know on days like this when it's a little toasty i could be digging ditches or tarring roofs not that i could, not that i'm in shape to do that <laughs> not that i i could physically do that but instead i'm sitting here talking 
to Mike Epstein and doing a podcast in an air-conditioned hallway of, of the Kansas, the Kansas City, City Convention, Convention Center. Center. That's right. That's <laughs> much more appealing to me than, I agree. <laughs> than digging ditches and tarring roofs. Well, there you go. Well, on that note, <laughs> no, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Mike, uh, let me just say this, and uh, you know, you can edit this out if you want. When, when I first received uh, when I received your first podcast or the announcement, the email that you were going to do this, I, I was immediately, now part of this is my journalism side, which I still have a music column and in the local city paper, and I still do some liner notes and love to do them. So this, this is a really quality idea and, and a, uh, an excellent service. I mean, I think there's always been talk about, uh, and there always will be talk at these conferences and at the jazz confabs of people's getting together, exchanging ideas, massaging what we all know to try and improve what we can do and how we can do it. And there's always room to improve. There's always, I, I love the fact when I hear new ideas. You know, I love that. Wow, why didn't I think of that? That makes perfect sense to do this, this, or this, or whatever. So uh, I want to commend you in, in this mutual admiration well, society. I, I think it. I don't think anybody has tried to do a series of interviews with or podcasts with uh, presenters or people in the arts. Or I mean, obviously there's been roundtable discussions, whatever. But but I think this is uh, really a, has a lot of potential, and I think people should uh, take advantage of it. And like when I. When I first heard it, I said, well, I want to participate in that, that project. So, okay. uh, anyway, yeah. congratulations to you. Well, thanks again. Well, there you have it. So, once again, John Posis, the We Always Swing Jazz series. John, it's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. I think everybody listening will have learned a lot. Either How that or they're going to sleep. Yeah, either that or they, they turned it off about 30 minutes ago. But either way, <laughs> i got to get back to the, uh, to the booth. To the booth. And uh, thanks again. This is great. You're welcome. Thank All right. You. Thanks for listening to Speaking of the Arts.